HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by PASA Sustainable Agriculture. Register to attend PASA's 31st annual conference by January 28th at pasafarming.org conference. This is What Doesn't Kill You Food, Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. Uh, today, we are going to talk about one of my favorite topics, antibiotics in the food system. Now, many of you who have been listening to me over the years, and by the way, we're coming up on my 12th year of doing this show. Uh, it has had many different names, but 12 years of doing this show. So back in 2012, that's 10 years ago, I interviewed Dr. James Johnson at the University of Minnesota about antibiotic use in livestock and what that meant. And today we are going to talk with uh, somebody who has been following the evolution of antibiotic resistant pathogens for, oh, I don't know. Let's see. When did you write Superbug? It looks like uh, 2007. Is that right? Um, anyway, my guest today is Marin McKenna. Marin has been on the show quite a few times, actually, um, but not recently. Uh, she is a journalist and an author specializing in public health, global health, and food policy. She is a senior fellow at the Center uh, for the Study of Human Health at Emory University, where she teaches health and science writing and storytelling and media literacy. Her most recent uh, book is Big Chicken, The Incredible Story of How Antibiotics Created Modern Agriculture and Changed the Way the World Eats, which was published in 2017. Um, she wrote Superbug in 2010, um, and uh, that was all about the rise of methicillin-resistant Staph aureus, also known as MRSA. And then her other uh, previous book is Beating Back the Devil, On the Front Lines with the Disease Detectives of the Epidemic Intelligence Service, which came out in 2004. She is a senior writer at Wired, uh, but writes for virtually every publication you can think of. So, Marin, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate you coming on the show again. It's great to hear your voice. It's been a while. Thanks seen, for having I mean, me back. Oh, it's a pleasure. I mean, I haven't seen anybody in, well, obviously nobody has seen anyone in at least two years. We're in year three of our pandemic. Um, hard to believe, but I haven't been to conferences or anything where I would have run into you in even longer than that. So it's, it is really nice to have you back on the show. Um, so last month, to talk about livestock and antibiotic use, you wrote a piece for Mother Jones, well, actually for Wired, which got picked up by Mother Jones, that pointed out that, well, uh, not much has changed since uh, 2012 when I interviewed James Johnson at the University of Minnesota. Um, so let's start um, by having you remind people, how are antibiotics used in animal agriculture? Like, 
you know, why, why are they used, for example? What are they used for? You know, this is a quirky and weird and actually scary and threatening aspect of animal agriculture, of the raising of meat animals that a lot of people have never heard of. And when they do hear about it for the first time, they're kind of shocked. So let me shock them. Yeah, good. <laughs> All over the world, including here in the U.S., for almost as long as we have had antibiotics, we have been giving tiny doses of antibiotics to meat animals on most of the days of their lives as they grow. And we do this for two reasons. The first and the, kind of the, the where all this comes from is that back at the beginning of the antibiotic era in 1948, a bright boy scientist named Thomas Jukes discovered that if you give very small doses of antibiotics to animals, he was actually working on chickens, um, you can accelerate the rate at which they put on muscle mass. Now, if you are raising animals to be slaughtered and turned into meat, this is a fantastic finding because it means either that you can raise animals in a shorter period of time, or you can save money by feeding them less and pump them out in the same amount of time. Wow. Jukes called that effect growth promotion, and it became a routine part of farming starting from the 1950s and spread all over the world from here in the United States where it was first identified. Not very long after that, Agriculture noticed that if you upped those doses just a little bit, so still what we would call a sub-therapeutic dose, that is not a dose of antibiotics that would cure an infection, you can not only improve the growth rate of meat animals, but you also can protect them preventatively from any diseases that happen to be lurking in a farm or feedlot environment. Now, it's important to say right away this is not how we use antibiotics in human beings. It's not what antibiotics are for. Antibiotics exist, were made to cure infections, not to prevent infections. And the father of antibiotics, Sir Alexander Fleming, who invented penicillin, warned right at the beginning of the antibiotic era that if we overused antibiotics or we used them in inappropriate doses, what would result would be antibiotic resistance which is disease bacterias developing the ability to protect themselves against the action of antibiotics. And he was right. And that's the reason why we care about antibiotic use in agriculture, is that it's an inappropriate use. It wamps up resistance in disease bacteria and bacteria in the environment. And as a result, it is a threat to human health. Right, right. So just to give people an idea... You quoted some pretty scary numbers in your piece uh, for Wired. What kind, how many pounds of antibiotics are being used in animal agriculture in the United States versus what we use for the human population? So it happens that there's brand new numbers out of the federal government. Um, and that was the reason for my piece at right. Wired. There's a a survey and report that the Food and Drug Administration does every year. It has a long, wonky name, but it's generally referred to <laughs> as the ADUFA report because ADUFA is the acronym for the legislation that created this report back in 2008. So the most recent ADUFA report, which was released at the end of 2021 and which describes antibiotic sales in animals in 2020, shows that 
in 2020, 6 million kilograms, that's 13.23 million pounds of antibiotics in the United States every year are sold for use in animal agriculture. And other estimates over the years have pinpointed the amount of that that's actually going to cure sick animals as a single digit percentage, like 3%, 5% at most. So almost all of those 13 million pounds of antibiotics sold in 2020 for animal agriculture were going for growth promotion and disease prevention. Now, there was at at almost the same moment, uh, two nonprofits, the Natural Resources Defense Council and the Center for Disease Dynamics, Economics and Policy, released an analysis of the previous couple of years of the ADUFA numbers. At the time they released it in late November, they didn't have the 2020 numbers yet. But looking at the 2019 numbers and comparing them to sales of antibiotics for use in humans in the United States, they came up with pretty much two to one. In other words, of all the antibiotics being sold, almost 66% are being sold for animal uses, which is overwhelmingly an inappropriate use. Wow. That, that is just breathtaking, breathtaking numbers. So let's, let's pivot to the Obama years because certain things changed. I mean, they had been, you know, the meat industry had been <clears throat> basically had no regulations around how they use these, um, these uh, antibiotics, particularly as growth promotants. And so um, during the Obama administration, someone somewhere was paying attention to this. Um, and so a couple of guidances came out, guidances, I put air quotes around that, um, which were meant to direct the industry to start uh, dialing back the use of antibiotics. The primary, the one that ultimately had some teeth in it was guidance number 2013, which was implemented finally after Obama left and Trump came in, and that was in 2017. And um, tell us what that guidance provided for, because that that was kind of critical. This was really important. And the reason it was so important is that this broke a stalemate between the federal government and the FDA and agriculture and the meat production industry that had existed for literally 40 years, since 1977, when the then brand new Jimmy Carter administration tried to create reforms and were foiled by congressmen backed by powerful agricultural interests. So the Obama administration had the idea, actually in 2014, to work around the possibility of congressional interference by making change via these guidances, which are effectively regulations, but are not, they're not laws. Right. So they're not anything that are, uh, that are going to be voted on. And therefore, as they can't do what they did in 1977 and say, hello, FDA, if you do this, we will hold your entire budget hostage. Do you want to rethink this proposal of yours? <laughs> right. And they also can't be really enforced either. Isn't that right? Hmm. So what the Obama administration proposed in 2014 and created in 2017, literally as they were going out the door before the inauguration, is they got the FDA to tell drug manufacturers, whom the FDA polices, that they could no longer label agricultural antibiotics 
in such a way that the label said the drug could be used for growth promotion. Right. And so what this did effectively was make growth promotion illegal in the United States without actually having to go to the trouble of writing a law that said that. The astonishing thing is that, I mean, it, it, it sounds very incremental, right? It sounds like a very DC kind of thing. We're not actually going to do a law. We're not going to go in front of Congress. We're not going to make right. a big government action. We're just going to do a guidance. That sounds kind of, you know, like no one's really going to listen to it. And the astonishing thing is that people did. That within, uh, within I think, about two years, almost all of the drug manufacturers that were selling antibiotics that were used for growth promotion went along with the guidance. One of them dropped out of the US market entirely, but the other, I think the remaining ones, there were 26 companies that said, okay, we, wow. will, we will agree to no longer sell our drugs for growth promotion. Now, there, there's a whole bunch of other stuff that happens behind the scenes. It's not as though this solved the problem of agricultural antibiotics forever, but it was still an important step. And it did have some effect on antibiotic sales. Although the point of my story in December, the point of this FDA report was that we can see that that Obama era action first really did create significant change in, right. in, antibiotic sales for animal use in the US. There was an initial really sharp decline, but now it, it's it's pretty much bottomed out and actually started to tick up again. Right. And that was that was what arrested my attention when I read your story, actually, was to see how much it had started to tick back up. And the reason for that, and this is where I want you to talk about the loopholes in that guidance, uh, because it is really it's it's so I won't say it's subtle, but it is um, devious, right? Because instead of saying it's a growth promotant, it's a disease prevention tool, right? That's right. Disease prevention is still fully legal in the United States. In fact, until this year, 2022, it was legal pretty much across the world. This yeah. year, there are new regulations going in to force in the European Union that actually will make prophylactic use or sometimes called metaphylactic use illegal as well. Now, the, the European Union has been far ahead of almost the rest of the world in controlling animal antibiotic use. They created the first uh, bans, the first bans with any teeth on growth promoters back in 99. They hardened right. that ban in 2006. After 2006, they discovered that, oh, that wasn't enough. And so for the past 15 years, they've been working on getting to the point of banning prophylactic use, preventive use as well, and they're finally doing it this year. Right. I mean, it is amazing how much farther ahead they are. And and I remember when I first started doing this work, you know, like 12 years ago, um, the uh, animal agriculture sector, because I used to be invited to conferences there. Um, I don't know why, because <laughs> I, you know, I guess because I would occasionally invite somebody on from the industry, you know, and let them gas on about how great they were. Um, but they were, they were always yammering about the Danish experiment and how it had failed because Denmark if I'm not mistaken, was the very first country to ban the prophylactic use of, uh, or at least to try to dial back the prophylactic use of antibiotics in their animal agriculture. Denmark, for people who don't know, this is one of the top 
pork producing countries in the world. Uh, despite their small size, they produce an enormous amount of pork. So, um, so it was a very big deal when they stopped using it for growth promotion. And everybody said, oh my God, their industry is going to collapse and yada, yada, yada. And in fact, they had a couple of years where it was, uh, you know, they had some problems managing disease in their herds, but ultimately they prevailed and their production uh, did not significantly slow as a result of the loss of uh, antibiotics. As That's as absolutely right. Whether right? the Danish experiment succeeds or fails, literally depends on which year you're looking at the numbers. Right. Now, the numbers that animal agriculture here in the U.S. have repeatedly cited to say that the Danish experiment failed, quote unquote, was the first year, maybe two years right. of production after the prophylactic ban went in, when in fact you could see an increase in mortality in young pigs. Yeah. And what that showed is that Antibiotics were being used as a crutch, effectively. So long as you put antibiotics into feed, and remember these antibiotics, they're mostly generic, they're very, very cheap. You yeah. didn't have to do a lot of other things, like improving nutrition, or spending a little bit more on energy to heat the barns, or increasing the spacing between sows, or giving better housing to sows and piglets. Right. Once the Danish industry figured that out, mortality gets better. I mean, the, the curve gets goes right back up again. And so yeah. if you are someone who thinks that animal antibiotics should be controlled, you can look a couple of years out from that bad case and say, oh, look, Denmark made it work. So other places can make it work too. It's it's really, it entirely depends on which year you're talking about as to whether it's a success or a failure. Absolutely. Absolutely. So now yeah, you made that point that the antibiotic sales in the agricultural sector have risen since 2017. I want you to tell people about, um, you know, how just it, it break it out in the sense of like how much is being used in the poultry industry versus the pork and the beef categories um, as compared to previous years. Because what I want to get at is the fact that poultry actually has made a very significant with uh, to be said uh, with great admiration, the Purdue poultry industry, you know, company has led the way in taking antibiotics out of their feed chain from basically egg to, you know, to slaughter. Um, so, uh, you know, tell us a little bit about how those numbers have changed over the last few years, thanks to um, really the, the initial uh, response to the guidance to 2013 or to 2013, 213. So it's really interesting that, you know, when people 50 years from now write the history of this movement, I guess, or of this paradigm shift in animal agriculture, 2014 is going to be the year where everything kicks off. Because that's not only the year that the Obama administration comes out and says, yo, we're going to change all these guidances. It'll take us a few years to actually get them written, but this change is coming down the pike. But in the fall of 2014, Jim Perdue, the head of Purdue Foods, at the time the fourth largest chicken producer in America. Right. So this is a private company, holds its cards pretty close to the vest. He he summons a press conference in Washington, DC. He he holds it at the National Press Club building. And at this press conference, he gets up and he says, We're doing a thing. We would like to tell everybody about it. We are taking our production antibiotic free. In fact, we pretty much already have. And this is an earthquake yeah. in the U.S. poultry industry. Yeah. It, it makes Jim Perdue briefly, deeply unpopular because he has <laughs> created a 
a standard that now the rest of the industry either has to live up to, has to get in the parade that he has just decided to be the, the parade marshal of, or, <laughs> or try to explain why they're not. Right. And for a couple of years, a couple of other companies do actually try to explain why they're not going to do this. And eventually the entire industry folds and follows produce example. And as a result now, those numbers that I talked about, those 13 million pounds of antibiotics used in 2020 in animal agriculture in the US, only 2% of that is going into chicken. Right. Something like 1% of broiler chickens in the US, the meat chickens that we eat, yeah. are raised with what we would call full spectrum antibiotic use, which is to say, you know, across all, all stages of their lives for, for um, primarily for prevention. Something like more than half of, um, of chickens, meat chickens in the US are raised what the industry now calls no antibiotics ever. Now, this is, this is conformance to guidance 213, but it's also joining the parade that Jim Perdue declared and put himself in front of. And uh, to me, that's very elegant because chickens were the experimental animals that started us on this back in right. Thomas Jukes' experiment in 1948. But it also, it, it also kind of proves the thing that the Danish farmers were proving when they struggled with their their pig health and then got their pig herds healthier without antibiotics. What Purdue did, they did this very elegantly and I give them a lot of credit. They actually oh, yeah. did it quite transparently in scientific experiments that they published in the peer reviewed literature at the time, just that nobody really noticed that in 1999 or something like that, they were, were publishing papers in World Poultry Science Journal. But they proved experimentally by, by pairing up chicken houses on different contract farms of theirs and different ecosystems up and down the East Coast that you could, you, you didn't need the antibiotics anymore. You could raise chickens without them because precision nutrition and precision crossbreeding had gotten them to the point where they really didn't need to use the antibiotics anymore. And to reinforce that, the Purdue company did a bunch of really interesting things in their chicken houses, which is the, the industry term for the big barns they're raised in. Yeah. They, they gave the birds more space. They gave them opportunities to exercise so their muscles would be perfused with blood and their, their immune systems would be strengthened. They gave them effectively natural antiseptics, various kinds of herbs and spices in yep. their feed to improve their gut health. Um, they cut windows in the walls of the barns so they could have natural light. And so they proved in all of these really kind of low tech uh, um, initiatives that using antibiotics routinely, as they had done, as the entire industry had done since 1948, really wasn't necessary. Amazing. But the, the, that, that's fantastic, right? Like chicken really changed animal agriculture in the US, but it also kind of shows... The, how hard the re changing the rest of animal agriculture is going to be because chickens are pretty uncomplicated animals in a production sense. They get dropped into their houses somewhere between day one and day three of their lives after they've right. hatched. And they do not go anywhere until the night that they are picked up to be slaughtered, which is about 42 days later. So they have a short life. Yeah. They, they stay in the same place. They, they never go outside. This is, we're not talking here about free range or, or 
pasture-raised or, or organic like or regenerative right. chicken. That's an entirely different category. This is just straight production chicken. Um, so there are relatively few negative inputs in into their raising. They're not... The, the, there are relatively few people come in and out of the barns. There's, you know, consistent food and water and, and um, air circulation and so forth. Pigs and cattle are, in production terms, are much more complicated animals. They are moved, and turkeys too, for that matter. Turkeys on a, a production turkey farm, turkeys will be moved from se around several different houses over the course of their raising. Pigs will be moved from barn to barn as well. Cattle, as we all know, get moved from cow-calf operations to feedlots. Right. Um, so all of these are both stressors on the animals when they get moved around, and they represent exposures to pathogens and to unfamiliar ecosystems. All of those particularly are infection risks. And if not infection in the sense of like, this animal is really sick, in infection in the sense of this animal isn't fearing, feeling very well and it's not putting on weight as optimally as it should. Right. And so as a result of those challenges, of those 13 million pounds of antibiotics used in the United States in 2020, 41% of them went to cattle. 41% went to hogs and 12% went to turkeys. And I don't actually think that is primarily a, an indication that those animal agriculture sectors are lazy or uninterested in this problem. I think it's mostly that the animals are authentically more difficult to figure out. Right, right. Well, pigs, especially, I, you know, are very sensitive. They can't regulate their own body temperatures. Uh, there's a whole raft of um, husbandry uh, issues that surround pigs that are unique to the pork, um, you know, the pork genus. But um, let's take a quick break right now for a sponsor drop. Uh, and we'll be right back with Marion McKenna talking more about this because there's other aspects of uh, the use of antibiotics in the uh, food chain that are very troubling and should be explored. So stay tuned for that. This episode is brought to you by PASA Sustainable Agriculture. For 30 years, PASA's conference has served as a springboard for transformative food system change. PASA's 2022 conference features more than 30 virtual and 90 in-person sessions on farming and food systems, covering topics that include building community food webs, keeping seeds to preserve cultural traditions, protecting local watersheds, as well as production methods and business skills for food producers of all levels. Keynote speakers include Soulfire Farms' Leah Penniman, author of Farming While Black, Sarah Mock, author of Farm and Other Efforts, and Jessica Gordon Nemhard, author of Collective Courage, a History of African-American Cooperative Economic Thought and Practice. PASA's virtual pre-conference takes place January 4th through 28th. Register anytime to attend live or get recordings. You can also join PASA in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on February 10th through 12th for its in-person main conference comprehensive COVID safety measures will be in place. Learn more and register at pasafarming.org slash conference. That's P-A-S-A farming.org slash conference. Okay, so we know now that uh, antibiotic use is ramping up in those other uh, two or rather three sectors that you described. But a lot of animal production facilities spray the waste of their animals, whether it's especially, I mean, especially hog waste, but 
but um, you know, cattle waste and even to a certain extent poultry litter uh, gets sprayed out on fields as low cost fertilizer, both to fertilize, but also to just kind of get rid of the stuff because um, needless to say, especially with pork lagoons and everybody has heard about pork lagoons because they're routinely breaching and overflowing and polluting uh, local communities uh, near those uh, CAFO facilities. So, um, but they spray that stuff on 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 the fields as low cost furniture, uh, fertilizer. And and you made the point that there is a loop of antimicrobial resistant pathogens that travel from farms through sewage, through soil, into hospitals, through pets. Uh, you know, in, and then ultimately into people. And I, I wanted you to expand on that a little bit uh, so people understand just how, um, you know, this is not just an animal husbandry issue. This is uh, a, an environmental contaminant that is affecting all of us. Right. So, you know, when we think of the risks of using antibiotics in animals, what we tend to focus on is that the antibiotics that they're given affect what we would now think of as their gut microbiome or their gut flora, and they, they cause resistance to arise or they enrich resistance that's already present in gut bacteria, which exit the animals via manure. We'll get to that in a minute, but because they're in the guts, they pose a risk to contaminating meat when the animals are slaughtered and disassembled and turned that's into true. the things that people buy in styrofoam trays in a grocery store. So that leads to really significant outbreaks of drug-resistant foodborne illness, E. coli, yes. salmonella, campylobacter, and so forth, because all of those organisms are routine occupants of the gut microbiome. They're hanging out in, in the animal's intestines, and it's only when they get outside the intestines at slaughter that they pose a risk by traveling via meat. Right. But right from the start of the, the scientific work that started to define what the true risk of animal agriculture is using antibiotics was, it was recognized that there was going to be an environmental component to this as well, because, as I just mentioned, those bacteria leave the farm in the guts of animals when they're living, but they also have left the animals already through their manure, which yeah. lands in the farm environment and in lagoons or in dry piles of litter and so forth. And that very first experiment back in 1976 um, by a, a, a fantastic scientist named Stuart Levy, who died just a few years ago, he showed that if you gave antibiotic-laced feed to chickens, the resistant bacteria that resulted could move through the farm environment and would first appear in chickens that hadn't gotten antibiotics and then appeared in the farm family's guts as well, even if they had no contact with the chickens as well, because only one person was handling the chickens. So there was some other route of transport. And what subsequently became clear is that you don't need to have, you don't need to enrich resistance in a particular salmonella and then have that salmonella be in the guts of an animal and have that salmonella be on the, the meat that the animal becomes. The DNA that confers resistance in bacteria can be broken free of bacteria when bacteria die or when they meet up and exchange genetic material um, and can travel through the microbial world across multiple steps Ooh. in a way that even now 
you know, decades after that first experiment in 1976, we, we don't entirely have the microbial tools to track this traffic, though they're getting better all the time. So we end up with resistance that is that was essentially birthed on a farm, moving through the environment, moving toward people, moving into different bacteria, because bacteria can can gather up bits of genetic material like putting cards together in a hand of poker. Uh-huh. And eventually you get to the point where you've got like a royal flush or something like that. And you've yep. got a, a highly, um, you know, a highly resistant, multiply resistant bacterium, even though that bacterium never had anything to do with the farm. Right. And didn't necessarily take, and, and that bacterium didn't also necessarily uh, be exposed to all of the different classes of antibiotics that are used uh, in animal or even for that matter, human uh, health. Um, in other words, they can they 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 trade uh, and and share um, their resistance to each and every one of these different classes of drug or different types of drugs. Isn't that true, Marin? Yeah. So the way you can to to go a little further with this poker analogy, the excellent, <laughs> excellent analogy, with, by the way. You yeah. know, um, if you think of the of an antibiotic um, being used on the farm, if that's like a jack. And the um, the antibi- antibiotics that are used in a um, hospital as like a queen and a king, um, you would expect a, a patient who's being treated in a hospital to be at risk of resistance to the queen and the king because those antibiotics are present in that environment and he, that person might be actually receiving those antibiotics. Right. But along comes the DNA that was originally affected by farm use and moves through the microbial world and ends up being acquired by this bacterium that's infecting the person in the hospital. And suddenly that person is, has, is harboring bacteria that are resistant to effectively the king, the queen, the jack, the ace, and a couple of threes as well. <laughs> right, right. Perfect analogy. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's it's breathtaking. I mean, just to 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 go to the sort of personal, not the personal, but but I think everybody has heard or has known of someone who, for example, is plagued with an antibiotic resistant urinary tract infection. Um, that you don't see a lot in the newspapers about that, but for a while there was a lot of talk about that, and that is one example, one very obvious public health example of this very phenomenon that we're talking about. Am I right? Yeah, absolutely. It, it's one of the ways that we started to understand the true public health burden and danger of farm right. antibiotic use is that more than 20 years ago, um, clinicians at a couple of research universities started to notice that people, overwhelmingly women, were coming into their just the like college health offices and complaining of persistent urinary tract infections that seemed to be recurring and recurring. And it took a while to figure out that they were not in fact recurring. In other words, they were not getting reinfected, but right. rather that they'd had one infection all along that was not responding to the antibiotics they were getting from the college health clinic because the infections were resistant. Now, as you say, people mostly dismiss urinary tract infections, particularly because they're a female a problem overwhelmingly because anatomically we're just our, the, a woman's urinary tract is m- more at risk of being contaminated 
by the GI tract as right. compared to men who, who people who have penises literally have like longer distances between those two orifices. Yeah. So, so UTIs are mostly not taken that seriously. Right. But the thing about an, uh, an untreated UTI, which is what a, a badly treated resistant UTI is effectively an untreated UTI because you give antibiotics and the antibiotics don't work and the organism keeps multiplying in the person's system. Right. Is that an untreated UTI can climb back up the urinary tract, can become a kidney infection. Yep. Kidneys are the thing that sieve junk out of the bloodstream. Bacteria yeah. can move in the other direction, get into the bloodstream. Then you have a, 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 a literal bloodstream infection, and then you end up with sepsis and septic shock. And right. the last time someone did the math on that, it was something like 40,000 cases a year. Wow. Yeah, absolutely stunning. And never mind the, the uh, you know, the damage that you do to your microbiome, which we've learned a lot about in the last 10 years, uh, from the persistent use of antibiotics, period. I mean, you know, there's all kinds. The only reason this really stuck in my mind is because my mother suffered from this at the end of her life. And it was truly something that very nearly killed her in one particular instance. Uh, but it was something she had to deal with for about two and a half years before she finally died you know, of other causes. But um, I want to talk, I want to move on because we don't have too much more time. But there was another thing that struck me in your article, and I have read some about this as well uh, over the last few years. But there are fungi, funguses, which are beginning to result, to uh, develop that are also resistant to fungicides. And I wanted you to talk a little bit about what that, what what are they and and what are the implications of that? Um, in terms, because we don't have a lot of fungicides in our medical arsenal, do we? We have very few. <clears throat> we have something like three classes of antifungal drugs. Maybe there's a fourth class at this point. Um, and there are complicated reasons having to do both with clinical medicine and with the economics of the pharmaceutical development as to why that is the case. But for the most part, fungal infections haven't been considered as important uh, public health threat, even though they definitely exist, because they tend to affect fewer people. That, though, is changing. And the reason it's changing is because you are most at risk of a fungal infection if you have, in some way, a diminished immune system. Uh -huh. We didn't used to have that many people with diminished immune systems in the world because they tended to die. But since the middle of the 20th century, medicine has gotten really, really good at keeping people with diminished immune systems alive. That's anyone who's had cancer chemotherapy, anyone right. who's, who uh, is infected with HIV. Um, we also have developed more and more therapies that deliberately suppress the immune system in order to control autoimmune diseases. So... Anyone who's had an organ transplant and has to take immunosuppressive drugs, anyone with rheumatoid arthritis, anyone with any other number of, of yeah, immune-related yeah, immune diseases is in a state of either, um, uh, either artificially created or naturally occurring immune suppression or immune deficiency. And all of those people are at risk of fungal infections and fungal infections have been rising around the world. Now, it turns out that there are several sets of fungal infections that are getting more resistant and are getting more virulent. And in one case, it's very clear that it's to do with 
the overuse of a fungicide in actually flower agriculture. Oh, really? That, that, that the use of um, fungicides on uh, things that grow from bulbs, tulips, but also onions, lots of other cut flowers, which are grown in the Netherlands, in Colombia, in, in China, um, are, are the, there are bacteria that are present not on the flowers themselves, but in, in compost and, and field waste that also cause human infections. And they're getting, their resistance is getting whomped up by overuse of these fungicides. But the trickier part is that there are, there's now an emerging class of highly, highly resistant fungal infections that are basically a yeast, a candida. Right. This particular yeast is called Candida auris. Um, auris is the Latin word for ear, and it was first identified in a, a child's ear in Japan about 13 years ago. This yeast no longer behaves like a yeast. It behaves like a virulent bacterium. No one can figure out yet exactly why. It's full evolution has not been completely elucidated. But the people who deal with these infections have this persistent sense that the way in which we are drenching the world in antibiotics and fungicides must be having some effect on this particular organism because it has appeared in multiple places at once. It didn't appear in one continent and then spread to another continent. It appeared on four continents at the same time. Wow. Fascinating. Fascinating. Listen, we have only a couple minutes, and I know that one of the things that really struck me in your article, and we'll, we'll close after this, is that antibiotic resistance has played a role in COVID. And I, I wanted to just touch briefly on that, and then we'll, then we'll wrap it up. But that yeah, seems this so is, important. You know, there are so many unintended consequences of these years of the pandemic, and um, I don't think this even has been fully elucidated yet. And that's partly just because everyone's so busy and so exhausted. But right at the start of the pandemic, when we didn't really understand, you know, when we were still in the first wave or the second wave, it wasn't, the PPE was in short supply, personal protective equipment in hospitals. It wasn't clear how best to treat patients. Early COVID patients going into ICUs received boatloads of antibiotics. In some cases, because the people treating them weren't sure what else they might be infected with. In other cases, essentially preventively, because an ICU is a place where you pick up a lot of infections while sure. you're being treated for another infection. Because you can't move, you're pierced by tubes, other people are coming and going, you can't get away from them, and so forth. So there was a lot of antibiotic use early on. Um, and it, so it's very clear, just looking at that, that early data, that there has been an uptick in antibiotic-resistant pathogens, particularly occurring in hospitals, um, as a result of antibiotic use trailing along behind the COVID pandemic. This is particularly tragic because hospital-acquired infections, which are, are often resistant, though not necessarily, that's not necessarily what defines them, have been a uh, topic of huge public policy pressure over about the past decade. And so there was a lot of success in forcing down rates of hospital-acquired infections. And now we've lost essentially five years of that progress. Oh, we're, boy. we're back to where we were five years ago because of the combination of 
the pressure on hospitals, the pressure on healthcare workers, the overuse of antibiotics, the lack of PPE, it's just created this perfect storm where this, this public health problem that we took our eye off because we had to deal with COVID is rising up again. Incredible. Well, I'm, I'm sure you'll be writing about that in the future. <laughs> um, so now is your moment to promote yourself shamelessly. Where can people learn more about you and uh, and your work? Uh, go ahead and say whatever oh, you've got. Thanks so much. Yeah, so as you said, I am a senior writer at Wired Magazine, and I have my own author page there where people can find me. Probably just if you Google Wired and Marin McKenna is the uh, the the easiest way to find me. All of my stories, including the ones we've been talking about, are listed there. Um, all of all of my books are at my own site, marinmckenna.com. That's Big Chicken, which is known as Plucked outside the United States, and Superbug, and Beating Back the Devil. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that's it. That's, those are the main places to find me. And thank you so much for the well, opportunity Marin, to chat. Thank you. I mean, this was illuminating, I hope, for everybody. But even for me, even with all the reading I've done over the years about this, I really appreciate your time, your expertise. And, um, you know, as they say, keep up the good work. <laughs> and uh, for stay, me. stay warm, stay safe, stay dry, stay dry down in, in, in uh, wintry Atlanta. What a shock to your system, Miss Southerner. <laughs> rude. Absolutely rude. Anyway, thank you very much. And thanks to my sponsor for uh, their uh, support for the program. We'll see you next week, folks. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye for now. What Doesn't Kill You is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. <laughs>